Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School, Oxford University, and Kantar, the data insights and consulting company. In each episode, we speak to industry leaders about the big issues in marketing, sharing evidence and inspiration for the future. This episode was recorded live at Cannes Lions in June 2019. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Jane Osler, Global Head of Media, Insights Division of Cantor. I'm Andrew Stephen, the L'Oreal Professor of Marketing and Associate Dean of Research at the Said Business School. Our guest today is Bruce Daisley, VP EMEA for Twitter, and he's an author and very popular business podcast host. Welcome, Bruce. Hello, thank you for having me. So Bruce, Twitter is something that hundreds of millions of people use all the, all the time, every day. It's a big part of people's lives, but it's evolved a lot over the years. So, so where is Twitter at now in terms of the sort of role it plays for its users in their lives? I think what we've tried to do in the last three years is really try to stop being trying to be all things to all people. So I guess the, the challenge that you have, especially when a new product is created, is that you, you often try to be expansive with what you're setting out to do because you know trying to do more things opens up more opportunities and the challenge of that is that when you've you're resource constrained and look you know all of us in the world are resource constrained so if you're trying to do everything you end up doing a lot of it in an ineffective way so what we set out to do probably three years ago is be more simplistic about what we we aim to do i saw a, a wonderful thing there was a book called uh, Marissa Meyer and the Fight to Save Yahoo. And it was a story about a war story about an early days in Yahoo, where their former chief exec, a woman called Carol Bartz, had asked a, a line of reductive thinking for the people who worked there. And she, she asked everyone to write down the single word that sprung to mind when they thought about Google, the single word that sprung to mind when they thought about eBay, similarly Amazon, and similarly Facebook. And then she asked them all to think of the single word that sprung to mind about Yahoo. And the challenge they had is that everyone said um, search for Google and they said friends for Facebook and they said auctions for eBay. But for Yahoo, there were 20 different words amongst 20 people. I think Twitter probably three years ago was guilty of that. That, you know, if you ask people, some people would say 
just very di- different things. And I think we reductively said, albeit it's not one word, but we, we said, you know, Twitter's about what's happening. So I guess the, the one word version of that would be news. But where news can be that you're obsessed with the playoff basketball or you're obsessed with Love Island in the UK, or it might be that you're obsessed with what's the, the song at the top of the the Billboard or the the UK pop charts. So I think reductively we've said Twitter's about what's happening and I think that's informed us. So what that might mean in in implication is that whereas previously people might have said, are you introducing face filters or are you introducing camera lenses? Well, Twitter's about looking outwards. Your camera sort of faces outwards on Twitter rather than inwards. You're not going to take... Very rarely do you post a selfie to Twitter, for example, or a, a photograph of your child's first day at school or you know, a friend's wedding. Twitter's not really about that. Twitter's about the interest and passion that you've got out in the world. So, so that's really informed how we then think about product development, how we think about improving the, the way that people might get value from it. And another aspect, I, I guess, unfortunately, is that people also take to Twitter and say bad things or, or there's sort of unhealthy conversations that, that can take place on the platform. Of course, it's not Twitter's fault that this happens, but, but what's Twitter doing to sort of protect its users from the dark trenches of the internet, so to speak? Yeah, it's, it's probably exactly to your point. The, the context of this would be that you know, less than 1% of people would see anything that was remotely bad, either in their timeline or in their mentions. But nevertheless, the people who do see it, it's, it's immensely, it's sort of, it's viscerally affecting. They, they feel, you know, they, they, they feel shocked by it. So let's think of a couple of examples. It might be governments trying to to uh, change election integrity by, by changing the debate on things, or it might be that uh, you, you might get abuse. And so let's think of those in turn. I think we've uh, probably the single biggest product uh, focus this year is is respecting election integrity. And elections all the time gives an opportunity to test this all the time. So obviously there were European elections uh, earlier this summer in, in Europe, across the whole of Europe. There was also an Indian general election. And so we, we get to test these things. And then uh, obviously, you know, we're all mindful of the fact that there's a, an American election in, in 2020. So um, all the time we're testing... Can we spot whether governments are trying to misuse Twitter or whether you know, third parties? And we're learning all the time the patterns of behaviour, what happens in those cases. In addition, abuse, you know, people receiving abuse, we quite often people will receive abuse from a newly constructed sock puppet account. So an account that a person's got a real account, they've got 1,000 followers or 10,000 followers, but then they create a new account, which is like their uh, abusive form. And we very quickly learn patterns of behaviour that what they do. If, if you set up a new account, you don't follow anyone, and you go immediately to, to adding Theresa May or you, you go immediately to sending a message to Donald Trump, then that's, that's an abusive pattern of behaviour because a real person generally comes to the platform, scrolls through interests, follows between sort of five and 30 accounts, then will consume some tweets. So, you know, if someone immediately goes to send abuse, machine learning algorithms could go, hang on, that looks a bit suspicious. So that's it. So, so I think probably the way it's transformed, 40% of the, th- of the things we take action on now... We take action on without anyone, even without a human being ever seeing them. And and I think machine learning in these instances especially has no, has very limited downside because it allows us to spot patterns of behaviour that otherwise would have been a, a touch tricky to, to identify with the human eye. 
Okay, so let's talk about advertising on Twitter. Can you share with us some good or bad examples of how brands advertise on Twitter? What what works and what doesn't? Yeah, we, we've really tried, in the same way that we simplified our product strategy, we've, we've tried to simplify what we say to advertisers. And, and we say really clearly to advertisers, Twitter's an incredibly powerful place to, to launch something, to say something new. That, you know, whether that is... The Women's World Cup took place this summer and it might be, okay, we want to launch our campaign promoting, you know, associating with the Women's World Cup. It's a great place to kick those things off. Or Twitter's increasingly, I think we're recognising it's an incredibly potent place to to launch uh, corporate social good campaigns. And I think because you've got a passionate audience who are there, who's scrolling through their timeline, you're principally coming to your timeline on Twitter because it's got that news it's got that sort of what's happening sense you're looking to find something new and so consequently whether it's a brand saying we're going to go to to a zero carbon footprint or we're reducing plastic those messages seem to land very effectively on on twitter so i think launching something new corporate social goods those things work really well so talking about social good, we all saw the Twitter action resulting from the Gillette campaign earlier on this year. And over time, we actually measured it. You know, it worked out to be a good balance of, of positive and, and negative. And one of the tweets that sort of set everything off or the conversation off about a week after the campaign launched um, was a woman commenting on a Tinder date that she was observing and uh, the woman and the guy had a difference of opinion and the woman left the date rather abruptly and that kicked off a whole new stream of conversation. So what is it, in your view, that makes a tweet go large, go viral? Yeah, th- things. If, if I think of things recently that in my timeline have, have sort of been amplified, have gone viral, things that are filled with wonder. I saw something yesterday, which was a science experiment that a couple of, three people poured some chemicals together and it had sort of, I don't know if you saw that, but it had like a dramatic and explosive effect. So things that have got a degree of wow to them, but also like something that feels honest and and whether it's transparently honest, there was a a thread that I saw that went, um, that that was heavily amplified by people about a guy who met his his wife, his partner, uh, he, he met her with a sort of strange happening in a cemetery. <laughs> and because it's like a bizarre story, people connect with those things and there's a degree of charm to it. You quite often see, you know, around any, anything that feels like it's got a degree of honesty to it and, 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 and emotion to it tends to do well. I mentioned before, Twitter's not necessarily a look at me platform, it's a look at that platform. And so... Actually, what you tend to do, you see there's a degree of, when there's an element of modesty about things, weirdly, it seems to be amplified. If you step forward and you say, please, can everyone retweet this? Uh, <laughs> it tends to do less well than if people believe that somehow they've, they've reached something that they feel connects with them in a meaningful way and they're, they're happy to promote it. I mean, our research also suggests this, that it's a place where things start. And so they, they sort of amplify on the platform, but also trigger you know, attention elsewhere, be that in sort of traditional media or other social platforms or wherever else. So I think it seems to be this place where if you get that mix right of, of, of honesty or interesting content or whatever it might be, then 
it takes on a life of its own, but it seems to be where these things begin. Yeah, and the remarkable thing is, is that a bit like that, that science experiment that I said I saw, that you can, you can find that you could post something to Twitter and you might have 30 followers. And then this sort of remarkable entropy happens where you go from, you've got 30 followers, but all of a sudden you've reached half a million people. And, and then, consequently, the news media have picked it up. So it's, um, it's very Darwinian in the sense that, you know, the, the, the strongest content somehow will prevail and, and sort of survive, often without you having a platform on it. So, you know, and, and we've seen wonderful voices really spring forward who have, whether it's the survivors of the, the Florida mass shootings in 2017... They took the platform, they had zero audience, but people, Emma, Emma Gonzalez and the, the likes, took to the platform really to share their first-hand experience and saw themselves almost sort of held aloft by the crowd around them. They saw that they, they developed a voice from just merely saying, you know, hard truths on the platform. Really. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So in addition to advertising um, or, or branded content for that matter uh, on Twitter, of course, it's another um, tool that brands use to see what's going on. So it's sort of the original social listening source, I think, and has that advantage that it's all out there and, and, and public largely. So, uh, you know, brands could react to that in various ways. What what would you say brands should or shouldn't do? Are there times, for instance, when brands should just sort of pay attention but, but shut up versus when they should pay attention and chime in? I, th- I think, you know, if you've ever had one of these comments, either about yourself or about your the, something you're working on, when when something comes onto a platform like Twitter and um, it feels cutting, the the first our first instinct is to think, how can we go make it go away? How how can we remove that? And I don't uh, diminish the fact that you know if you're a brand marketer and someone says something about your campaign or some, something about your product, immediately it, it might feel like, wow, tw- people on Twitter are horrible. And, <laughs> and in fact, you know, there's a degree. I, I, I love the quotation that Sue Uniman from, from Mediacom in the UK said. She said that Twitter is the medium of truth in that what you're discovering via being able to see Twitter is you're reading people's minds. You're reading the things yeah. that they always thought... You know, there was always some people who thought that the latest, latest Avengers movie was bad as well as the most successful movie of all time. And all that's happening is that you're, you're seeing some of them because, you know, yeah. you made the mistake of thinking, oh, this is the most effective, successful movie of all time. Everyone must love it. No, no, of course. There's going to be some people who share uh, different opinions. And, and similarly with products that maybe aren't, you know, the, the biggest in their field, there's always going to be bad comments. And I think the critical thing for any marketer for anyone involved in, in trying to understand what real people consumers are thinking twitter 
offers you that window into their minds. And often you can use it. So we've seen brilliant things recently where there was a campaign by Burger King because when they searched Burger King fries, they saw that a lot of the conversation was saying Burger King makes great burgers, but their fries are so soggy. And so it's really interesting marketing truth. Does a, does a marketer think, okay, well, I'm not going to address that? Or does do they see that as the fuel for propelling their next campaign? And so we saw in the UK, the Burger King campaign, they recognised that people were saying their fries were soggy. This is an unarguable truth in the eyes of the consumer. So addressing it, saying our fries are now crisper than ever before, seems to be a good way to, to address the thing that maybe... 99% of Burger King customers weren't addressing, but the ones who were saying something about it probably were, were acting as, as ambassadors for everyone else. So, you know, it was a, an incredible way for them to use it as a source of truth and to sort of propel the advertising that they then set about doing. Okay, so moving on to you and your, your experience. Um, you've worked for various different media owners over the years, you know, radio, digital, various different platforms. What's changed in media and what stayed the same? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, and, you know, I'm not remotely the sort of person who has rose-tinted glasses, but fundamentally I want... It's, it's unequivocal that... Um, and not just media, but, you know, let's talk specifically about media, but work is significantly less enjoyable than it used to be. And it's principally because what's happened in the last few years is that we've all felt a responsibility to try to keep up with a relentlessness that's happened. And, and here's the fundamental thing that underpins all of this, is the average working day in the last 15 years has gone up by gone up from seven and a half hours a day to nine and a half hours a day in fact if your company has an expectation you'll stay connected to email and stay which is you know probably everyone in media there's an estimation that the average working week is around 70 hours a week and and what we've we've missed is that let's look at the outcome of that the outcome of that is that levels of burnout are at unprecedented historic levels you know the by some estimations half of all office workers are burnt out and so so let's work on the basis that in media and, and in the advertising world it's probably significantly higher than that and and where the consequences of burnout are people feeling they're no longer getting pleasure from some of the things that they used to find enjoyable emotional exhaustion uh, my favorite symptom of burnout is depersonalization where you find the people around you more annoying than ever before so if that if the if the, if the guy who sits opposite you typing now drives you crazy or the woman who sits next to you chewing gum seems to drive you to distraction you might be showing signs of depersonalization where we're actually right i think we can all recognize it that's and here's what's happening and it's principally because um, what we've mistaken, we, we've, we've not understood how knowledge work and cognitive work takes place. And cognitive work requires moments where you're, 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 there's a void of thinking, where you're not putting uh, information in all the time. And so that's it. I think we've made the mistake of thinking that all of us are, are, want to be in service of doing our job better. And we think the way we do that is by being constantly connected. And it seems to be reducing our powers of in, uh, imagination, reducing our flashes of insight, because we're, we're sort of we're getting rid of some of some of the systems in the brain that actually, weirdly, boredom seems to produce very strong creative ideas, and we've eliminated boredom. I have, as you suggested, I think a few months ago, switched off my email notifications, and I think mm. it has made a difference because I don't 
constantly check my phone, certainly for email anymore. Um, I think maybe we need to go the whole hog and just switch off all notifications. Um, but if there's one tip for our listeners about being happier at work, what's the one thing you would say they should do? Yeah, the thing I would say is probably um, recognising the importance of breaks. I think, you know, if we were looking at athletes, uh, an athlete, the, the next generation of Usain Bolt, would not say, right, I want to be the next Usain Bolt, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run for 70 hours a week. Far from it. You know, they would say, okay, I want to work really hard, but then rest. And in fact, you know, I met a semi-professional cyclist who'd gone from five days a week in her job to, to four days a week in her job. And so she asked her coach, what should she do? He said, take Monday off, sleep all day. Right, okay. That's not what any of us amateurishly would say was the, the way to become a more effective cyclist. And I think I would say having a degree of system thinking about the importance of brakes seems really important. And brakes... There'll be certain people who might hear this who will say, absolutely, it's culturally, it's, it's an important part of their culture to take a lunch break every day. And, and unfortunately, what's happened is that these, uh, these transatlantic alliance of, of Britain and Americans who probably have looked at those nations that take breaks thinking, how indolent, why do they need, <laughs> why do they need this hour lunch break? And what I'd say is that all of the evidence suggests that that Mediterranean aspect is probably right. Taking a break seems to make us more uh, ima- imaginative, creative. It seems to build a, a stronger sense of affiliation amongst teams. Worth knowing this. But the worst time to find yourself in court is just before lunch. You're more likely to be found guilty by the judge or magistrate. <laughs> more likely to get a severe sentence. Why? Because, because being tired... And not uh, and being a long way away from a break makes us more judgmental. It makes us more critical. And so, you know, if we want, to, if we're in an environment now where collaboration, creativity, better ideas seem to be a really important part of us doing a better job, then recognizing that breaks are an important component of that seems to be uh, a, a common sense discovery, but that one that's being pushed further and further away from our behaviour. In addition to breaks, which I think. I, I need to take more of. Um, what about many of us who have to deal with working at sort of across lots of time zones, either because you're traveling a lot or because you, you've got teams all over the place? That seems to be like another layer of complexity in the workday because, you know, you might be wrapping up the day, but then, you know, the inbox is filling up because the people have woken up over in California. So how do you handle that sort of situation? Here's the, here's the curse of modern organisations, is that they've become so big that trying the, the burden of just trying to keep everyone connected, everyone in the loop all the time, actually becomes this gravitational pull, preventing you from getting anything done. And I think one of the interesting things is that the, the evidence strongly suggests that um, there's something called psychological safety, and psychological safety was largely the brainchild of a woman called Amy Edmondson, a, a, a sort of business psychologist, who said that when you can get some transparent candor that goes between people, the quality of the work seems to benefit. So that tr- psychological safety might be your boss giving you the benefit of the doubt on things, or it might be, you know, so if something goes wrong, your boss will understand, but also it can be you being honest with your boss. And that psychological safety, that honesty between people, seems to reduce when teams become too big. So you'll know if you're on a a video call with 40 people and you're presented with what you think is a calamitous idea, that (laughs) the the burden of you saying to these 40 people distributed from Rio to Tokyo to, to, to wherever, the burden of you saying this is an awful idea is too much and you don't say it. But if you find yourself in a group of three people 
and you presented with a calamitous idea, the catastrophe that this represents to the organisation, you'll probably step forward and you'll say, guys, I'm just not convinced this is a good idea. So there's the thing. Candor doesn't seem to scale. Mm -hmm. And so the more that we can make groups smaller, the better. I think the more that we can try and reduce the burden of meetings on us, um, it seems to energise people if you can reduce their meeting time. So... Bruce, just to just to wrap up, you in your book you talk about the notion of positivity being important. Now, I'm often accused of being over positive and over enthusiastic <laughs> about things, um, but how do you encourage people who aren't so positive to get with the program? So it's about positive affect, which weirdly is sort of good mood in as much as anything. So it's not necessarily like a saccharine. Uh, jolly hockey sticks sort of you know let, let, let's do this it's us against the world but more the sense of feeling in a calm and rested headspace would be as much as it like the the interesting thing I mentioned before that the average working day has gone up by two hours a day but if you look at people who check their emails for two hours a day outside of work half of all, all those people if we measured stress the same way we measured the signal on our phone how for all those people who check emails two hours a day would be on four bars of stress, would be on sort of this sort of highly stressed environment. And that's what's described as negative affect. So it's a, 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 a bad frame of mind. And I think all I'm suggesting is that the evidence strongly says the mood we're in changes the decisions we make. Anyone recognise that? You know, if you're in a bad mood, maybe you've, maybe you've been stuck in traffic for three hours and then someone asks you a favour, you're far less likely to do them a favour and if you've been lying on a beach somewhere and someone asks you a favour, the mood we're in changes the, the way our brain is inclined to make decisions. And so that's what I would say. So, so it's, it's frustrating the limitations of the English language that, that positivity, you know, it's, it's got so many different takes on it. But it's more about putting yourself in a, good, in, in a sort of good mood. And the challenge of positive affect, the, po the challenge of being in this good mood is that um, you can put people in that by giving them a bottle of champagne one day or a bunch of flowers one day or cake. But you can't, if you give them a, a bunch of flowers uh, or a bottle of champagne the next day, it doesn't work. It's sort of like the smoothie delusion, you know. The, you can't give people um, good things all the time and put them in a, a positive state. So that the, there seems to be we need to engineer a way of working that is genuine about creating these things rather than bribing people into them. episodes and more information visit uk.cantar.com or oxfordfutureofmarketing.com please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe within your podcast app so you know when new episodes are released thank you When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.